This is The Guardian. Today, how the COP27 negotiations nearly fell apart and what deal they've left us with. The past uh, two weeks here, you, you you haven't really seen any tourists. All the pools and the hotels have been deserted. The streets have been pretty empty because everyone here uh, has been at the COP. 45,000 people attended this COP. And from morning until night, they have been stuck in windowless rooms, all working every single day, uh, 24 hours a day in many cases, on this, uh, this agreement that we finally got. At COP27, the world's leaders came together to make a pact that they would take actions, ambitious, often difficult ones, to abate the climate crisis. In those meeting rooms in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, the stakes were high, especially for leaders from developing countries who are seeing every day how this crisis is destroying lives and land and who were looking for more financial support. The Guardian's environment editor, Fiona Harvey, was there and listening. Pakistan in particular made a, a, an enormously important, uh, very moving speech uh, about what they have suffered uh, in the, the, the floods that hit them uh, just in, in September there. We have to spend billions of dollars to protect flood-affected people from further miseries and difficulties. How on earth can one expect from us that we will undertake this gigantic task on our own? We also heard from African countries. Africa is suffering a record drought. 150 million people are on the brink of extreme hunger. Um, and we heard of, of what's happening across that continent. I and many young people were robbed from our future. We've been faced to grow, to act, to think like adults, because we cannot watch as our future is shut, our dreams put to an end. We heard from countries, small islands, um, that are threatened with inundation by rising seas. I want to continue to live in the Maldives. I want my two-year-old girl to also grow up in the Maldives. We heard really that the climate crisis is not something that's going to happen in the future. It's something that's happening right now. The sense of urgency was clear, but translating it into an agreement proved almost impossible. The talks went on past Friday when the conference was due to end and into the weekend. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, COP27, what's the deal? Fiona Harvey, you're the environment editor for The Guardian and you're in Egypt right now because you've been reporting a lot, many, many articles every day about COP27. The conference was due to end on Friday, but by Sunday, 
delegates were still finalising the deal. Why did it carry on longer than expected? It carried on much longer than expected because no one could agree. It was very, very difficult in the final stages. Um, We had countries arguing over uh, the finance for poor countries to help them deal with the ravages of climate breakdown that many of them are already experiencing. Um, There was a long argument over that. Um, It had been going on for two weeks uh, without resolution. Uh, Finally, in the early hours of Friday morning, the European Union made a U-turn because they had been opposing the idea of a new fund uh, for this uh, this finance, which is called loss and damage. They'd opposed that the entire time, uh, and then they made a U-turn saying, actually, we could have a new fund. They had said before you couldn't have a new fund because there were already lots of existing funds. Um, But then they said, well, this is what the developing countries want, uh, a brand new fund, so let's go for it. So that was should have been uh, a breakthrough. It wasn't quite because a lot of developing countries by then were deeply suspicious of the European Union's motives. They reacted very warily uh, and they said, yeah, we're not sure about this, why this is being offered in this way. And so the negotiations continued. The other thing that held things up was that a lot of countries were trying to backslide and unpick promises that were made last year uh, at COP26 in Glasgow, uh, which was a promise to target 1.5, a limit of 1.5 degrees of temperature rises above pre-industrial levels. But uh, I'm afraid that there were uh, some nations here, some governments who did not want to keep that commitment and tried very hard to, uh, to remove it. And this was absolutely Dreadful, really. I mean, you would hope that as a minimum, uh, these conferences would build on what has already been agreed in previous years, rather than try and take us backward. It sounds incredibly testy, given that ostensibly all of those world leaders are there at this conference trying to reach the same collective aim. How many COPs have you been to? This was my 16th. Your 16th COP. Are they normally this fraught? They're not normally quite as bad as this. Uh, Usually you you do have a a better measure of agreement, but this one was facing some particular problems from the start. Uh, We have a pretty dreadful geopolitical situation around the world at the moment. Uh, The Ukraine war, obviously, a lot of countries are at loggerheads over that. The US and China because uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, went over to uh, visit Taiwan in the summer. That's uh, an island uh, over which uh, China claims sovereignty. So that was regarded as a terrible diplomatic breach by them. Uh, So they had stopped communicating on the climate. There was also, of course, it, it was taking place against a backdrop of crisis around the world. There's a food price crisis that is particularly hurting developing countries. And of course, all these countries are still recovering from the COVID pandemic, and developing countries in particular feel a sense of betrayal, uh, I would say, over how they were treated in the COVID pandemic. They weren't given access to vaccines in the way that they were promised. Uh, They felt, felt that they were sort of hung out to dry, really. So relations all across the board were in a terrible state when we went into this conference. How do the negotiations work in the final hours? 
Well, there's a, a difference uh, between how the negotiations usually work and how they worked this time. Right. And that was a very important factor. So normally what happens is that the host nation, which is regarded as the, the honest broker, uh, I made all the other countries with their differences, um, the host nation listens to what the countries have to say, and it publishes uh, a text based on uh, what countries have agreed or what their different positions are. And then those texts are usually published. Uh, everyone, you know, including journalists and the rest of the world, uh, can have a look at them. And then the countries uh, go into to private rooms and, and, and talk about the, the issues. Then there's a new text and, and the process goes forward like that. This time, there was an early uh, draft text, but it it wasn't what we would have expected as a draft text. It was described to me as just a long shopping list, um, and it was 20 pages long, and uh, it had all these different things in it that, that many people said they had not agreed on. And then the process that the Egyptians followed from then on was certainly unusual. Uh, what they did was they, instead of publishing a draft that everyone could see, uh, they drew one up themselves, and then they invited the countries in one by one to have a look at this draft text. Uh, they were allowed to discuss it just with the Egyptians for 20 minutes, and then they went away. And many countries found this process very opaque because they weren't sure that the text they were being shown was the same as the text that was being shown to other countries. They had no idea what other countries were saying about this text, and they had no idea what would happen to the comments that they made verbally to the Egyptians about this text. So that process came under fire a lot. I had a lot of people telling me that, uh, that they were very unhappy with what was going on. And eventually what they had to do was, uh, was to bring everyone together in these, uh, these big uh, plenary sessions, as they're called, to kind of thrash out some of these differences. And that's how the conference progressed uh, until the early hours of, uh, of Sunday morning. So how many people would be in that final room then? All countries can be represented in the final room, but we're not even sure quite how many countries were represented in the end because some people had had to take their flights home. Um, but it was it was very touch and go in the in the early hours of Sunday morning. Well, by Sunday they did reach that deal, and it's worth I think looking at the central promise that they've made, which is to set up a loss and damage fund. Can you just explain what that means? Loss and damage is often misunderstood. What loss and damage really means is the ravages of climate breakdown, the, the devastation uh, that some countries face. It's the kind of thing that cannot be adapted to. You can't build sea walls. You can't uh, make your uh, infrastructure more resilient. If you're going to suffer some kind of climate catastrophe, uh, like a, a hurricane or like the devastating floods that hit Pakistan uh, earlier this year, or like the terrible record drought uh, that is afflicting Africa at the moment, threatening 150 million people in Africa uh, with extreme hunger. Those are the kinds of climate-related disaster that you need very swift 
money to, to, to come to you for, for rescuing people uh, and for trying to rebuild uh, not just the physical infrastructure that's that's been damaged, but also the social infrastructure. So loss and damage covers all of that, and it means the financial assistance that should flow to poor countries because of that. What it does not mean, and it's sometimes wrongly framed in this way, it does not mean compensation, it does not mean liability from the rich countries. Those two terms are specifically excluded under the Paris Agreement from these discussions, and it certainly does not mean reparations. The leaders of lots of developing countries have been asking for a fund like this to be set up for decades, right? How did it happen that at this conference, finally, a fund was actually agreed upon? Well, right up until Saturday night, uh, things were on a knife edge uh, for all of the reasons that I've outlined. There was no real agreement coming. And what happened was that the developed and developing countries managed to come together in those final moments. The United States played a role. Um, it was uh, agreeing to a loss and damage fund as well. The UK was agreeing to a loss and damage fund. And the EU, of course, uh, had made its offer uh, on Friday morning. The developing countries that had been you know, very upset at the way they'd been treated, they agreed that they would move forward. And then what happened in the very end was essentially that the developed countries, the EU and the UK in particular, gave way on some of the issues that were most important to them. Because they really wanted to get agreement on 1.5. They wanted to push forward with more action to keep the 1.5 degree limit within reach. They wanted, for instance, to have a commitment that global emissions should peak by 2025. What they got instead was very weak language on 1.5. And they, they just didn't hold out for any more. And the reason they stopped holding out was because they could see that they weren't getting anywhere. Uh, the Saudis were against them. Uh, some other countries, uh, China was objecting to various things. The uh, Gulf countries were objecting to various things. Brazil, they were objecting to various things. And there was a choice facing the EU and the UK. And it was that they could carry on, but the conference might collapse. Or they could agree to this language, which was much weaker than they really wanted, in order to get through what the developing countries wanted, which was this loss and damage fund. And several of the negotiators have made clear that they're disappointed with what's been agreed upon, like Franz Timmermans, who's the vice president of the European Commission. But what we have in front of us is not enough of a step forward for people and planet. It does not bring enough added efforts from major emitters to increase and accelerate their emissions cuts. It does not bring a higher degree of confidence that we will achieve the commitments made under the Paris Agreement and in Glasgow last year. So it does not address are there delegates the who say they're committed to staying below the target of 1.5 degrees? Are they concerned that the focus on that is getting lost? Well, there's a very hard road ahead because next year's COP, COP28, will take place in the United Arab Emirates. This COP was in Egypt, and many people uh, feel that the 
fingerprints of uh, Saudi Arabia are very evident on the deal that was reached here. Uh, Egypt tells me very clearly, I should add, that they have been completely independent throughout this process, that they have been an honest broker. But next year, we go to uh, UAE. They're a massive oil and gas exporter, and they have very strong interests in fossil fuels. So the question of uh, what will happen then is uh, a very difficult one. But what we will see on 1.5 next year at COP28 is now the big question. Indeed, those of us who came to Egypt to keep 1.5 degrees alive and to respect what every single one of us agreed to in Glasgow have had to fight relentlessly to hold the line. One other thing that was discussed uh, at this COP into the early hours of of, uh, Sunday morning was the proposal by India for some language on phasing down fossil fuels. Uh, Now, this was a sticking point at COP26. Uh, In the very last moments of COP26, some words uh, on a phase out of coal were replaced at the insistence of China and India with the weaker term phase down of coal. Uh, This time, India, rather surprisingly, came forward with a proposal that there should be a phase down of all fossil fuels and that that should be included uh, in this decision. That was uh, the subject of a great deal uh, of discussion. There were a lot of oil producing countries, including Saudi Arabia, that were vehemently opposed to this. And in the end, what happened was we didn't get those words, we didn't get a phase down of fossil fuels. We got the exact same words as we had at Glasgow, which was a phase down uh, of coal. So that's a demonstration, I think, of the power that fossil fuel countries wielded at this COP and will continue to wield next year at COP28. So the the fossil fuel industry itself is having an influence at these conferences? So we found out during this COP that there were an estimated 630-odd fossil fuel lobbyists uh, in these halls, uh, oh. which is more than the entire delegations from many developing countries. And, you know, that does make a difference. And, of course, uh, next year in UAE, um, we can expect something similar. A lot of their delegation here uh, were people with strong fossil fuel ties, um, and we can imagine them having a large presence at the next COP. Coming up, what lessons should world leaders, banks and businesses learn from this year's conference? Fiona, you've given the sense of how difficult the atmosphere has been in many ways at this year's COP. What lessons do you think developed countries should take from what's happened this year if they want the negotiations to to go better next time? Developed countries should have come to this COP with a great deal more preparation in terms of their relations to developing countries. And they should have come with a lot more humility and a lot more understanding and more money. Because what they found here was that developing countries were really angry 
They don't feel they got any help with COVID. They don't feel they're getting any help with the, the food price crisis that's going on because of the Ukraine war. And of course, the, the energy price crisis around the world. Um, so they really need more uh, assistance from developed countries. One of the things developing countries want is reform of the World Bank, uh, because that is seen as really not helping on the climate crisis. It's about the whole way that the World Bank operates. And we heard from many countries here that they're deeply unhappy with that. This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, spoke very strongly um, about how we needed fundamental reform of these global financial institutions. We believe that we have a plan. We believe that there can be the establishment of a climate mitigation trust that unlocks $5 trillion of private sector savings if we can summon the will to use the SDRs, special drawing rights, in a way that unlocks the private sector capital. She has some proposals around that that really gained traction here. I think there's a real push behind this now. The last time you were on the podcast, you said cops are not going to solve the climate crisis by themselves. But on the other hand, the climate crisis won't be solved without cops. What other mechanisms should world leaders be putting in place to make sure that we actually are making the progress we need to be on slowing global heating? We need to be working on the climate crisis in every single forum that we have. So COPs are essential because it's the only place where all of the countries in the world come and talk on an equal basis, where the rich polluters, the, the countries with the really high greenhouse gas emissions are confronted with the evidence. What we saw here at COP27 uh, was the, the, the it was extraordinary, uh, the response to Pakistan. Um, because Pakistan has suffered the most devastating floods this year. It's, it's uh, hurt so many people. It's affected a third of the people in the country. 20 million people in Pakistan were reliant on humanitarian aid. There are millions of people who are still homeless. The impact of these floods will be felt for many years to come. And the, the, the Pakistani leaders here spoke with such moral authority of the suffering that has been caused there, it really made a massive impact. And you can only get that kind of thing when you have every country here. So it really underlines the importance of COPs. But of course, we can't make enough progress at these COPs precisely because they're, they're open to everyone and everyone's equal. That means that the, the countries who want to wreck things have the ability to do so. So what we need to do is put pressure on those countries in other forums. Uh, they include forums like the G7 of the, the richest countries, but also forums like the G20, the world's uh, 20 biggest economies, which includes countries like Russia, which has a, an appalling record. It's the world's fourth biggest emitter. It does absolutely uh, nothing as far as we can see on uh, cutting down its emissions. And there's so much it could do. Countries like Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, uh, which hosted the G20 this year, Indonesia has made great strides on climate change. Um, they've gone from being a country that was, I would say, standing in the way 
of progress uh, a few years ago to being a great champion of trying to, to deal with the climate crisis. We can talk to the private sector. If banks stopped lending money to fossil fuels, it would make a massive difference. And they're not stopping lending money to fossil fuels, unfortunately. So the private sector has a massive responsibility to bear and a massive role to play. Um, so we need to have forums that bring them to the fore as well. So what we need is is a kind of a COP plus in a way where, where we try to make progress within COPs, but we also use every forum at our disposal around the world to focus on the climate crisis. We can't afford to waste time. This has to be a top priority for everyone, for every government. This meeting is now adjourned. I now declare the conference closed. Fiona, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Fiona Harvey. Please do check out her coverage of COP at theguardian.com. And while you're there, I really recommend watching the documentary she's presented. It's called... Whose job is it to save the planet? And you can find that at theguardian.com forward slash documentaries, as well as on our YouTube channel. Also, next Wednesday evening, we're hosting a Today in Focus event. My colleagues Nasheen Iqbal and Michael Safi are going to be looking back at the biggest stories of this year with some of the Guardian journalists who broke them, including Pippa Creera, Emma Graham Harrison and Alex Hearn. The event's going to be live streamed, so you can watch it wherever you are. To book your ticket, you just need to search for Today in Focus, a look back at 2022. This episode was produced by Alex Atak, with production support by Safi Bujal. Sound design was by Axel Kukoutier, and the executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.